I see some of that damn insanity's crossed the border. Had, huh? You Iowa people took off the border guards and them Nebraskans come up here. And... I'm going to tell you my name and please be real quiet. You're awful close to an airport. Okay. My name's Jack and I'm an alcoholic. Oh, God. I hope they didn't hear you over there. That's a sort of a no-no to run through an airport anymore hollering hijack. You see a guy across Stanford Field sometime, I thought, God, I hope he don't see me. You know, the security guards come climbing out of every wall when they, when they do that. But uh, I am glad to be here. Uh, my sobriety date is uh, the 21st day of August of 1962. <laughs> and all that means is that I'm old. That's, that's, that's about all. And uh, I, I don't know if I'm an old timer or not. They say you don't, if you don't drink and don't die, you get to become one. And that's a shame sometimes. They don't give that credit to people that die. You know, I don't see anything wrong with saying, Joe had 40 years if he'd lived. You know, but we don't do that, you know. And I don't know why we don't do that. We just, we just don't do that. Uh, I appreciate being invited to your, uh, Coon <laughs> Raccoon River Roundup. And, uh, I don't. Uh, I think you ought to respect the traditions of a more. I see you have a picture of the chairman of the Great Plains Roundup on the podium. And, uh, <laughs> you shouldn't break a man's anonymity like that. But. neither here nor there, but it is a, a wonderful slogan for any conference, and uh, I can certainly understand it and appreciate it because uh, I was brought up in an era of time with a group of people who, uh, that was really their motto. They, I don't think there was any reason for it. They were just too damn dumb to analyze anything. They were, it was before we got all the professionals and everybody that got so smart and could take everything and twist it and turn it and so all those old-timers were uh, pretty simple guys, and they were pretty straightforward, and they loved Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, uh, I, I have sadness of heart sometime, and I, I'm very sincere about this. When I travel any place, include my own hometown, and I don't see a lot of them. You know, I, I'm not real sure why I understand why they've gone into secluded rooms some places to carry 400 years of sobriety into two meetings a week. Uh, they've run from something, obviously. Uh, I'm not a runner. I'm a fighter, so if you want to come to Louisville, Kentucky on Wednesday night to the South Louisville group, be prepared to fight if you've got any differences with AA. It's, we're strictly AA people, and it's a, I think it's a great group. Their enthusiasm for AA is, is beyond question. Uh, I, think it's, I think the people that are going to miss what they are and what they know are the, are the people that... Uh, don't get involved with them that much, you know. All through our history, there have been problems and protectors. Uh, the protectors were the people who loved Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, and they were protectors were people who, who sincerely and honestly to God believed that all people, not just a few, not just a percentage, but all people were entitled to identify with the problem 
when they got here. We lived through the solution, but they had a right to identify with that problem, all people, not 80% or 90% or whatever. And sometimes that became overwhelming to a lot of them, and they left, and, and that's sad. But enough of that. The, you didn't ask me here for that. If you want to ask me back, I'll be glad to express an opinion. <laughs> Uh, I'm glad to see that one or two things happened last night, Bob. You was excellent. There's half the crowd here that you had, and that means one of two things. So you all have to decide which he did. He either run them off or saved them. <laughs> I'm not sure what happened, but one of those two things occurred. Obviously, they're gone somewhere, but uh, uh, and that's sad. But uh, uh, Bob has uh, gotten a lot better, and I was thinking last night about him talking about his fear of failure. And I'd like to give my wife a lot of credit to helping you overcome that. And I'll explain that. We were out in Oklahoma here a while back, and we was at a restaurant, and they had the most gorgeous pie you ever laid your eyes on. And Bob was talking about Linda Levin coconut cream pie. And, oh, they were good. Meringue that high. And my wife said, why don't you take Linda a pie? Bob said, I can't carry that on an airplane. She said, sure you can. Get you a pie and take it to Minnesota from Oklahoma. And he took it and got there with the pie and overcame his fear of failure. <laughs> yeah. Nothing works better than traveling a thousand miles with a damn pie and getting, on, and getting home with it. And so Gay really helped him. And uh, uh, I brought Gay with me. She goes everywhere I go. I call her my American Express card. I don't leave home without her. Uh, that was the idea of my sponsor. He... He believed in that. It doesn't mean a thing except just what he believed, and I believed what he believed out of the threat of death. And, <laughs> and uh, every opinion I express is his, uh, and he's now dead, and I still respect that for the fear of him haunting me, and I, that would not surprise me at all if he did it. But uh, he explained to me a long time ago, many, many moons ago, that the most important chapter he thought in the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, after a certain period of time in your sobriety was the family afterwards. And that my family should be as important or more so than, to me than anything on this earth, except my sobriety, of course. And, and he just literally despised people that loved alcoholics and didn't do that to their own families. And he, he made me aware of the fact that our slogans come in that portion of the book of the family afterwards, to live and let live, and easy does it and first things first. And so uh, uh, he... I've always respected everything he did, he, except he made Gay go to Al-Anon. I've never thought too much of him for that. But <laughs> she became rather independent, and uh, uh, they have a lot of sarcasm towards A.A. at times. Uh, I was telling her a, a story somebody told me about two Al-Anons walked through a graveyard, and on a tombstone it, it read, Here lies an alcoholic and an honest man. And one turned to the other and said, isn't that strange? They'd bury two people in the same grave. <laughs> so I'd like for you to meet her. Gabe, will you stand up so these people know who follows me? I can truly tell you that if you stop some time and listen real close to those words of the wind beneath my wings, well, she is obviously the wind beneath my wings, and we get along real well. I, I've learned in Alcoholics Anonymous, through the steps of AA, to three things that are important in my life. I've learned to live, and I've learned to love, and I've learned to laugh. 
and that's that encompasses my life. I, I, I can't tell you more about me than those three things. I was uh, uh, able to speak the language of the heart as Alcoholics Anonymous asked me to do uh, after I was able to implement the steps into my life. And trust me when I tell you, you cannot speak the language of the heart until you're capable of doing what that says. And, and that took a while for me, and, and as I'm sure that maybe it does for some of you. And uh, uh, but that's okay that we're not on any time frame, sometimes quickly and sometimes slowly. And uh, it's, it's real good and real neat in my life today. Uh, I feel inadequate sometimes going to discussion meetings because I really don't have that many problems. And uh, I, uh, I'm weird in A on occasions because they'll, they'll get to talking about something and I'll say, I really don't know anything about that. And they'll look at you like you're crazy. You know, because you can go to a group today and they'll discuss the mating habits of the Brazilian chi-chi fly and, uh, you know, there's 35 guys in the room that know something about it. You know, they'll all express an opinion and, you know, and they get to me and I say, I really don't know anything about that. Yeah. And it's, it's quite interesting and, uh, but it's, but it's a lot of fun, you know, that, uh, I, I, I get enthusiastic about young people and, uh, and they get fearful of old people, and uh, and that's okay. I was telling some of them today that young is a state of mind, except when it comes to sex, running, and fighting. <laughs> if you don't want to talk about them three subjects, then we can join in. But uh, if you do, we'll have to sit back. But it is great to be here and be part of a family of anything. And uh, I appreciate Denny inviting me, Denny and Rod and their committee. And Denny's a real alcoholic, and... And uh, there's no doubt in my mind he's a real alcoholic because uh, I'm from Louisville, Kentucky, and it's, uh, Kentucky is the home of the thoroughbred industry of thoroughbred racehorses, and uh, I've been around them since I was about 11 years old, and, and I love seeing other racetracks, and I have picture albums of racetracks, and it's sort of a hobby, and I dearly love it. And, uh, and so I called Denny, and I said, Denny, if that racetrack is open, I'd love to come Thursday at my own expense, of course. And, uh, Without he without hesitating, not even a second, he said, "Hell yeah, it's open. Come on up." <laughs> and I knew he was a real alcoholic. <laughs> you know, a guy who wasn't a real alcoholic would have said, "I'm not real sure. Let me find out, and I'll call you back." <laughs> so we came up, and it wasn't open. So that wasn't too bad because an Al-Anon immediately came to the rescue and said, they simulcast over there. We'll go over and see the simulcast. I said, oh, that's great. So we went over on Thursday and they simulcast on Wednesdays and Sundays. <laughs> so you can't win one way or the other, right? Uh, those Al-Anons are something else. We had a lady up home about the weirdest story I ever heard about an Al-Anon. And it's true, and I know it's true because alcoholic told me. This guy that told me this story has been sober 29 years like me. And a man with 29 years sobriety will not lie. Billy said there was a lady up there that was married to a drunk, and he drank and drank and drank and died. Never quit drinking, and she was an alcoholic. And when he died, she had him cremated, mixed these ashes with some marijuana, and smoked him. 
And she said that's the first time in 30 years that sucker ever made her feel good. <laughs> and that's the truth. And I only say that because of the source it came from. What is it? A few of you look like you don't really believe that. I'm glad to be here, and on Sunday morning, I don't know, somewhere along the line in our organization, it got to be the spiritual speaker. I hear referred to that quite often, you know, and uh, I've never heard an AA talk from one of these podiums by the type of people you've had here before me that it would, it would be impossible for them not to be, to give you carry a spiritual message if they're standing here sober and willing to provide the love and the service that is necessary in their lives and the lives of others that you could obviously tell that these speakers have, have connected. You know, the, I believe in the 12 and 12, somewhere after the fifth step, it talks about man establishing a kinship with God and man. And it's, it's a trinity in Alcoholics Anonymous for us to survive, and, and that triangle not only with something for our program, but for our individual selves, that there's a unit here of God, man, and us. And when you make that connection, to where you live and realize that there's somebody else on this planet besides you. Call it self-will or a riot, call it anything you want to call it, but we are people for some reason, or at least I was, that did not have the ability to recognize there was somebody else here besides me. Yeah. And so whatever I wanted and what I needed, and it seemed like it's what I did, without really stopping to think, and I'm not real sure that I didn't care I'm just not real sure. What about them? And what about God? And it didn't really matter. It just seemed like what I... And I think the greatest paradox of all in Alcoholics Anonymous is the simple fact that when you're new to AA and you come in and somebody says, I want to share with you the fact that if you will stop doing what you want to do and start doing what you need to do, it will set you free to do what you want to do. Now that sounds so crazy, you have to take it home and think about it for about a week. You know, and why is that true? Why is it true if you will stop doing what you need to do and start doing or what you ought to do, it'll set you, or set you free to do what you want to do? Your wants change. You know, all of the things you thought were so great in life are not that great at all. Many people that have existed on this earth would surrender fortunes if they could learn how to live, learn how to love, and live. And that gift has been given to the people who came before us, and they were perfectly willing to share it with us. And all we had to do was become willing to live. Sometimes that's real hard for people like you and I, you know? I mean, Alcoholics Anonymous tells us it's what you learn after you know it all that counts. Boy, I knew it all. I, my father uh, was a very interesting man, and, and I, I talked a bit about my father. I come from a family of four. I have an older brother who uh, took advantage of an offer of an education through a connection my dad had with the railroad and uh, was offered a free college education through the General Motors Corporation at their Tech Institute in Flint, Michigan, and the offer was there for me, and I turned it down. And I have two younger sisters than I am who still live in Louisville of normal existence, I guess. Same husbands and four children. <clears throat> and I didn't want to get involved in any of that goofy stuff. Were you married? 
and raise kids, I thought was absolutely ridiculous. I didn't want to get married anyway, and I never married till I got sober. And now I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. It's the greatest life I've ever had. You know, and, and I can't even imagine living it without gay. But back then, I didn't want to when I got to the age to think about it, you know. Puberty, is that what they call it? One of them damn Al-Anons hurt my feelings here a while back at conference. We are sensitive. Anyway, she told me that the distance between puberty and senility for me was a very short trip. <laughs> and they say the truth hurts. Right? Right? Yeah. But I never want to, to get married. You know, I don't know why. Most of the women I knew drank, and I, I got a, God forbid you marry a drinking woman. I mean, I think about that today and get killed. Get a hold of a half a pint, and you've got to go home and give somebody half of it. <laughs> I wouldn't want one of them. And, and, and I, that settling down in the family matters never. And interested the other children in my family. So I decided I'd, I'd play games with life and do what I wanted to do. I look back, and, and I think sometimes on Sunday morning, and sometimes this time of the year for me is a, is a time to reminisce and, and look back and... Uh, that 29 years ago this very morning I was sitting inside of an insane asylum at Western State Hospital in Hopkinsville, Kentucky. That's where they sent alcoholics in 1962. It's an insane asylum. The big book talks about asylum. That's what they had. They've cleaned up their image today. They put you in a treatment center. <laughs> sounds better. It just sounds better if somebody calls your house. Where's Joe? We put him in the treatment center. We took him to the asylum this morning. You know. It sounds better. You know, the 90s are better for that. Even in our own program, 1962, we'd grab some gal, take her somewhere, and shack up with her for a month. Now they get involved in meaningful relations. It sounds better. And when I decided to go do my thing, whatever that was, it was, you know, what, what can I say? It was just in complete contrast to what was normal. It was in complete contrast to what my father believed kids ought to do. And my father would have nothing to do with that type of life. My father was in Al-Anon, didn't know it. He was in Al-Anon before it started. <laughs> he believed in that Al-Anon philosophy. What's that old saying? How many Al-Anons it take screwing a light bulb? None. They just sit back and let it screw itself. <laughs> and that's the way I was in my dad. My dad said, I have standards of living. You, you abide by my standards if you live with me. If you don't like it, go live somewhere else. I, like any other kid my age that knew it all, told him to go to hell. That's exactly what I'd do. You know, I was speaking somewhere one time, and I said I was born and raised in the city of Louisville, and uh, a lady corrected me. She said, don't tell people. That's not good English. Tell me you were born and reared. She said, anything that's raised has absolutely no intelligent form of life. And my father looked at her and said, leave him alone. He knows what he's talking about. <laughs> that's the kind of guy he was. You know? I'm 20 years old, and for the first time in my life, you know, I, I got arrested. You know? I changed. I, I didn't drink too well when I was 20. Up to that time, I was having a ball. Got started in it early. During World War II, things were rationed. I took a job with an older guy in the filling station at night. We had gasoline to sell without coupons because people would turn in books at the end of the month. The old people who drove cars, they didn't use them. we give them to us. we placed them, sent them to Washington. We had six, 700 gallons of gas constantly in those tanks. We could sell you any coupon. You couldn't buy whiskey and beer. I'm 
about 15 years old, 16 years old. And guys that owned them beer joints and liquor stores coming there, and we'd fill our Cadillacs up, and they'd leave the whiskey and the beer. They had it. We'd put it in the storeroom and sell it or drink it. Guy owned a drugstore, didn't have any gasoline. He had cigarettes. He'd bring over the good ones you couldn't buy. Lucky's, Camel's, Chesterfield. We'd fill up his Cadillac. He'd leave the cigarettes. We'd put them in a storeroom and sell them or smoke them. Then there was a few girls around there that didn't have any gasoline. <laughs> You'll have to draw your own conclusion. <laughs> and I was on my way, and I enjoyed it. You know, I enjoyed that type of life. It was exciting. I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you why. You know, I don't think you have to explain that. That's why sometimes uh, maybe we're the cause of people analyzing us because when we would do something awful, and somebody say, "Why does he do that?" and you say, "I don't know. It's just the way he is." That's a natural thing for a drunk to do. And it seemed like the way that I decided to live was a natural thing for me to do. I went for years never understanding that. An old guy out in Midland, Texas, Scotty, that's a friend of mine, Scotty's talking one night, and Scotty said, it just seemed like the thing to do. No. That's enough explanation. It just seemed like the thing to do. And I enjoyed it. And it was a very disruptive thing to my father. My mother died when I was about 17 or 18 years old. She's not a part of my story. My mother never saw the things that was about to happen. And I badmouthed my father. I didn't. I thought he was a mean old man, a dumb old man, or whatever he was called. I asked an old guy here, "What? Let me tell you something. If you're young and new and a, don't ask them old guys nothing. Just sit back and listen and do the best you can. You know, every time you ask them something, you're in trouble, you know. And I'm old and I'm in trouble, you know. So I asked one of my A friends, Mr. Bibbin. I said, Brian, do you think I came from a dysfunctional home? He said, was you in it? I didn't wait for the rest of it. I just left. <laughs> and my father and I used to go round and round in something that he, that he did not enjoy. And my father told me later in life that he, he said, I hope it never happens to you. And I, and I know many of you all have incurred it. And I know some of the people that are here with us today have incurred it. But my father said, I, I hope you never have to go through the, the emotional turmoil of looking at somebody that you dearly love for who they are and yet are totally despising them for what they're being. He said it's, you know, it's like loving an alcoholic. And he said, I guarantee you, it'll tear your heart apart. And he said, I hope you never have to. I've been very close to a lot of people, but not to the extent that they were children or dependents. And, and my father, you know, dearly loved me, would do anything in the world to help me, but he did not condone what I did. And I never had a decent word for my father in my life until the first time I was arrested. And I can't explain that, but it seemed like for me and some of you, I'm sure, that humility begins in the back seat of a squad car. <laughs> we can understand humbleness in a squad car. And my father was the type of guy that he didn't buy into that. He just didn't buy into that. And when I got in A, wanted to make amends, I never had to ask him what I owed him. I knew what it was. Nothing. Financially, zip. I tell you how cheap he was. He used to give all of us kids five dollars on our birthday, and five dollars to him was a lot of money because with my mother's sickness, no hospitalization, there was never any money in our house. And uh, later on, in, in 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 the years after she died, it was a struggle to pay people. And my father paid everybody ever over. Well, he'd give the kids five dollars a piece on their birthday, and a lot of money to him at that time, and he held mine back. And when I got sober, he gave it all to me. 
but he wouldn't give me my five bucks. You know, and just kind of guy he was. And he lived for eight years in my sobriety, the best of friends. My father and I used to sit and talk, and he loved AA, and he'd go with me when he could, and sit and listen, and knew all the people, and he just, and, and he said, I, I'm a firm believer that if you're looking for a helping hand, it's on the end of your own arm. And he, and he said, God, I wish I would have known. Neither one of us knew where to. And I'm sure it would have been devastating to my father if he'd have known of A, and so would have I have at that time in my life. We talked about that at times. You know. But anyway, he thought I was what I wanted to be. But the first time I was ever arrested for drunken, disorderly conduct, and I was 20 years old, and, and uh, I was an alcoholic, I'm sure, because I repeatedly did it. And I was in jail, and I dropped a dime then in the telephone, and, and he answered. And jails are interesting places to listen to alcoholics. You'll uh, find them in bar rooms talking about that old bitch they live with. And you lock them up, and they drop a dime in the phone, and she answers, and uh, he'll say, honey. And she went from an old bitch to honey to a jail door. And I dropped that dime in that phone, and he answered. He said, what do you want? I, he said, why did you call me? I said, I thought you might come down here and... Oh, he said, I wouldn't worry. I was worried about it. He said, as smart as you are, oh, he said, I'm sure if you figured a way to get in, you'll figure a way to get out. And he hung up. And when I got out, he said to me, he said, I have never been in jail, but I understand they give you one telephone call. If I was you, I wouldn't waste it. Well, I never called him anymore. He, right, he didn't have any understanding. And so I went on my merry way from the next 17 years to become a wino in the city streets of Louisville. I didn't plan on that. It just, it just worked out that way. You know, and I drank away all my friends and whatever I had and whatever I would support, including my mentality and my spirit, and, and all of that dies with it. And I never intended for it to. And never, I don't have any regrets. You know, I, I think at times I'm very fortunate when I listen to you and I listened to our speakers with families, and, and I, I thought many times that uh, I was a single guy with no kids and no wife, and I see you go get a gutter and take it home with you. And I see that stinking, filthy, emotional trash running down through the middle of the living room gutters that you've drug in. I've seen people who honestly to God in their sick minds believe that the people that love them the most are in some way responsible for what they've become. And they reach out of their emotional gutters and they drag their wife and their kids or their husbands or whoever right through this whole stinking mess with them. And it never happened to me. And I'm eternally grateful that I was so fortunate in life that I was allowed to leave home and go live in a gutter rather than go and get one and bring it home. And I've never regretted that. If I had to do over, I would hope it would be the same way. And all along the way, I had people to threaten me and try to help you and tell you what's going to happen to you if you didn't quit drinking, you know, that the doctor says you'll die, the judge says you're going to prison, the cop says to jail, the boss, the unemployment line, the father to the street, you know, all the threats. It does not help people that are scared to death. The fascinating thing in the field of alcoholism is to look at people who seemingly are unafraid and yet are, who outwardly possess no fears and inwardly are engulfed by them. We are the type of people who do not adjust real well in life and yet will go bear hunting with a switch <laughs> and give the switch to the bear.
people say, well, one thing about him, he's not afraid. You know, you go to them lights. Denny, that's not Denny. Your damn police line up. <laughs> you didn't do that to them other guys. <laughs> God, it's awful around this program to be low bottom. <laughs> and loneliness, what does anybody need to tell you about loneliness? When you're the life of the party, you know? Isn't it fascinating to look back and see everything they thought you were you were exactly the opposite and couldn't tell anybody, not even yourself. Because after all, it would betray that macho image we demand we keep and carry. And sometimes, sadly enough, even to our graves. It's just, it's just the way we are. You know, I can't psychoanalyze it or anything. I can't even explain it. It's just the way we are. You ever see a couple of kids in front of a judge and a and by the way, that your judge here in, in, in Iowa, Des Moines, was a good friend of mine. And I knew him well and personally, and I loved him dearly. And uh, I appreciate Lauren getting me that copy of that book he wrote. Uh, I treasure those kind of things. And uh, I, I just wish many of you all could have known him. Not knowing him, oh God, you know. Oh, you missed half your life, you know. I never will forget when they came out with those 20 questions to find out if you're an alcoholic. That was the most interesting thing in the world because it made wine old Joe mad. Why no Joe says, everybody in the damn professional community is writing questions for us to find out if we're alcoholics. What the hell do they know about it? I'll write my own. <laughs> so Joe wrote questions you and I can identify with. Uh, have you ever had the roof of your mouth sunburn? Have you ever been run over by your own car <laughs> while driving? Have you ever been arrested while in jail? Have you mastered the art of puking out of a moving vehicle without it blowing back in? Did you ever wake up in bed with a circus midget? <laughs> and the crazy damn part of that is you identify. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's what's so crazy about it. Yeah. 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 And them old guys like Joe and Ray, they knew what they was talking about, see, because they could keep it simple. Yeah. They didn't need any analyzation. You know? And boy, did they, you know, did they learn to live and to love and to laugh. Oh, my God, did they. They were so great. Great. Joe said one time that he came in AA and he said, well, Nobody wants to admit they're an alcoholic. That's before everybody wanted to admit it and start writing books. Yeah. That's before life got unfair. I drank some rubbing alcohol one time, and they put me in a psychiatric unit. I was suicidal. And here a while back, a lady drank some, wrote a book, became a millionaire. You know, by God, it ain't fair. Yeah. Joe said it was a stigma to alcoholism. When he come in, didn't know what stigma was. He looked it up in dictionary, but didn't have dictionary. So he asked somebody, and they told him, and he said, by God, that was true in 1960 in the 50s. There was a stigma to alcoholism, and he knew it because he had two brothers, and he said one of them was a homosexual, and the other one was a Republican, and the family thought more of them than they did him. <laughs> That's a stigma. Anyway, I lived on Skid Row for about a year, a little longer, and everybody tried to, not to get me there, you know. 
take the fear away from you by threatening you. That's an interesting thing. So many, so many wonderful stories I've heard people tell over the years about that. One of them involved an Al-Anon lady that tried to scare her husband into quitting drinking. He wouldn't quit, and she bought a devil suit at a costume shop and put it on. He come home one night drunk, and she leaped out from behind a hedge at him and, and said, I've come to get you. That old drunk looked at her and said, Who are you? And she said, I am the devil. And he stuck his hand out. He, he said, By God, put her there. He said, I've been wanting to meet you ever since I married your sister. <laughs> Please turn the tape over and continue play on side two. it didn't help. On the 21st day of August of 1962, when I was sleeping and living in a cardboard jungle on, in the concrete streets of Louisville, uh, I was sitting in the back room of a saloon one day, and a, the back door of that saloon opened, and uh, my father walked in with a guy I'd never seen before in my life, and he was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and a vice president of the company I worked for, a railroad knew it, and he said, maybe I can help him, I'll go see him. And he came in, and I was pitiful-looking piece of human flesh. I had all my teeth had been kicked out, and I had long hair and a beard. I turned yellow from dehydration and malnutrition, and, and, and I literally hated everything and everybody, including God Almighty, and didn't want to see my dad. When my dad walked in, I was, I was so ashamed with what I've told you about the way I felt about me. There's a time in your life when you have to face the realization of that, and generally it's a very depressing time. You can no longer tell yourself for what you are, even though you won't take blame for it at the time, I can, but I, I knew what I was. I didn't really want him to see me. But he came in, and the guy with him came to where I was, sitting at a table, and wanted to shake hands with me, and I was so unusual. He was so well-dressed and such a nice-looking guy. And he stuck his hand out, and he said, Hi, my name's Jack Dawes. I understand your name is Jack. Yes. He said, I've come here to help you. I'm a friend of your father's, and they've told me about you, and I've come here to help you. I hope you'll let me help you. He said, I, I can't help you if you won't let me. And that's true today. And I asked him the obvious question, why? Why, stranger? And he said something I didn't believe, but I've never heard anything more profound said in AA. He said, I used to be like you are, and somebody helped me. And that's why I'm here. And wherever I go or wherever I am, that's why I'm there. I used to be like you are, and somebody helped me, and no other reason. Dr. Bob Smith asked us to provide love and service to the newcomer, and we will be rewarded for that, which we are. And little was I to know at that time that the greatest asset I was to ever own, as the big book tells me, as hard and as sorry as it was, the greatest asset I own today in my life is my past, because I'm capable of sharing it with you and remembering it for me, and eternally grateful, eternally grateful I don't have to live with full knowledge that the choice is mine. I, I can go anytime I want to, and thank God up to this point, with the help of a lot of old people I haven't wanted. I was so sick that day I told him I'll go anywhere you want me to go, I don't care. 
but I had not surrendered me. <laughs> That's not unusual. I think the book calls us defiance people. You know, it's an interesting aspect in Alcoholics Anonymous. If you don't believe this, poll the AA group you belong to sometime. And almost to, almost to the person, it'll be about 50% of the people that fell on their knees, said, God help me, came here very docile and wanting help, and you'll find the other half who were very defiant people that didn't believe in nothing and, and didn't want anybody around them. And, they, and were not willing to take the responsibility for the actions of the And I, that's the kind of person I was. So they took me to a psychiatric institution in Louisville, Kentucky on the 21st day of August of 1962. And uh, I got strange enough fairly well pretty quick in that week time with the help of uh, vitamins and the things that they do for you. And I got a haircut and uh, I didn't still didn't have any teeth, but I, I wasn't that bad looking, but I was sitting in a room talking to another drunk that morning and a nurse came in, give me an Al-Anon handshake. You've seen it. Don't you go anywhere tonight, we're going to the AA meeting. Now, I never heard of AA, as strange as that may sound to you. Never heard of it. Had no idea what you were talking about. I said, well, AA, what's AA? She said, Alcoholics Anonymous. I said, Alcohol, are you insinuating? <laughs> you think I'm an alcoholic? Yeah. Now, you know, why would I tell her that? Well, obviously, for the same reason, if you're 18, you tell them that. You see, because alcoholics are people that have problems they can't handle. If for no other reason. And I'm not built that way. The problems I have are caused by others. I can handle them if they leave me alone. If you want me to accept responsibility to any degree of what's been going on in my life, I refuse. You know, alcoholics are people that have problems they can't handle and must turn to God and others, and I don't need that. You know, if I had made up a hate list for you, God would have been on top of it. I don't need that. And I said, I am not going to any damned AA meeting. She said, you'll be back there with me tonight or I'll put you over there where the doorknobs are on the outside. Now, if you've never been in one of those places, I'm here to tell you they have architectural defects in them. <laughs> Some doors only have one knob. It's not on your side. So I said, well, I'll go. But I ain't no damn alcoholic. She said, maybe you could be wrong about that. I said, I'm not wrong about that or anything else you've mentioned so far. You know, I came here because of my nerves <laughs> and the pressure of others. You know, alcoholics aren't the greatest people in the world admitting they're wrong. You know, I believe the worst story I ever heard about that was many years ago out west about an old alcoholic cowboy that come out of a saloon one day drunk and an old man come in town riding on a mule and that alcoholic waited for that old man to get off that mule and he walked over to that old man he said hey old man can you dance the old man said no I don't know anything about dancing that alcoholic cowboy said I bet you can and he got his six shooter out and started shooting at that old man's feet and the old man got to dancing counting them bullets when that alcoholic cowboy fired that six bullet he reached up on the back of that mule and got a shotgun and he stuck it up in that alcoholic's face and he said did you ever kiss a mule's ass <laughs> He said, no, but I've always wanted to. <laughs> Story of my life, right? Justification for anything. No, but I've always wanted to. Well, I went back to that AA meeting that night, and that nurse had me by my earlobe and drug me down a hallway, and off we went. And I ran into a doorway into a student nurse's classroom where they met, and an old lady was standing at the door, old gray-haired lady named Margaret Bivens people I'm telling you about are dead. God, she was a beautiful lady. Smiled all the time. 
gray hair, silvery gray hair. God, she was a doll. I didn't like old ladies. I know him, old ladies. And I got back to that door, and she smiled, put her arm around me, called me honey. She said, hi, honey. I said, honey, would you like a cup of coffee and a cookie? And I thought, where in the hell did she think I'm from? <laughs> you know, right? A half a pint and a hooker. Yeah. Yeah. But by God, a cup of coffee and a cookie. Anyway, I went on in and sat down. And the guy got up to talk, and I harassed him. Uh, I, I was uh, flying high on that Valium, and, and I didn't want to be there. And he was the nicest guy, and, and he later became a very dear friend of mine. And he talked, and I talked, and it was a mess. They tried to shut me up, and I wouldn't. And uh, you don't get too violent or throw people out in those psychiatric hospitals because you don't know who you're dealing with, I guess. And, and they tried everything in the world shutting me up. But he'd say something, I'd say, yeah, I don't know about, you know, hey, crazy, crazy. And finally the meeting was over, and I went out that door, and that damn old woman was standing there. And she invited me back. Now, you know she was nuts. <laughs> put her arm around my shoulder again and I thought I've heard them stories about old women and young boys she said honey come back please come back she said our program needs people like you and I thought they ought to put that old broad in a home <laughs> get her off of the street and I went back the following week and that's all you did in that psych hospital except chase girls that's another interesting story falling in love in one of them nut houses <laughs> happens all the time People that work in them try to separate people from that are in love in there. Don't do that. You've got two drunks in love in a nut house, leave them alone. I'm serious in them treatment centers or whatever. You get them separated, they'll screw up four people. <laughs> kind of belong to each other. Well, I went back the following week and I sat down next to that old man that <laughs> was there the following week. He was a crusty old fool. And uh, he said, hi, how you doing? And I thought, hey, not, really none of his business. He don't work here, right? I thought, well, he's old. Why don't, and I'm talking to myself, why don't you be nice to old people? I really believe that today. <laughs> I'll never forget that old man. I said, I'm doing all right, old man, but I ain't no damn alcoholic. And he looked me as square in the eyes. You can look anybody. And he said, really? And I said, really? He said, well, if you ever find out what you are, you ought to do something about it. You look like hell. <laughs> and I got up and moved away from him. <laughs> and he became my sponsor. <laughs> and got what a glorious and great old man he was. Greatest, greatest guy that ever lived. I got out of there after 30 days and went down to that nut house and spent 40 days and came back to Louisville and uh, my sister gave me a home with her. As long as I didn't drink, I could stay there. I could understand where she was coming from. And I went to AA on the bus, and uh, he already picked me up downtown a whole lot, and then when I get to the meeting, I get a ride home. But I went because I was afraid not to go. You know, looking back on it, I'm not real sure what I believed, but I do know that I was given the option. The greatest thing I think about Alcoholics Anonymous is that it's not a multiple choice program. You know, really, it's either or. You know, you either stay here or you go back out there. There is nothing else. And that gets worse, and if you haven't got there yet, go do the yets, and then maybe you'll get back here. You know, and I, I'd get more trouble talking to them old fools. There was only three things they wanted you to understand. 
if you could understand three things, you could stay sober. You, you, you went to the meetings every day. They went 370 days a year. They go 90 days, 90 meetings in 90 days. Every day of the year you went. First year I sober, I went to 371 AA meetings. And you went with them. And they told you to do three things. You to sit down, shut up, and get in the car. <laughs> now, why they hollered get in the car, I don't know. They'd say, sit down, shut up, and get in the car. And that's all you had to do. Now, that does not require a mental heavyweight, <laughs> you know, to do that to do that. You can pretty much do that with brain damage, you know. So you sat there and listened. You had nothing to say because you knew nothing. You know, it was common sense what you knew brought you here. So you obviously knew nothing and you said nothing. And, and you'd make mistakes. And as soon as you made them, you thought, God, why did I do that? And I was telling some of the kids over in the hospitality room this morning that some guy was talking about something, I'm sober 60 days, and I said, well, in my opinion, and the whole damn room hushed. And them old guys just looked at you. And my sponsor said, what did you say? <laughs> and I thought, I wish I hadn't said that. <laughs> I said, in my opinion, he said, who in the name of God would be interested in your opinion? <laughs> and wasn't he right? wasn't he right and they tolerated the existence of the steps of being powerless over alcohol you know period stop there as dumb as you are stay there for a while you know if you could handle it you wouldn't have got drunk and gotten all that trouble if you could handle it you wouldn't you wouldn't have had your friends afraid of you when you're sober people are afraid of you when you're sober because they have no idea what you'll act like down the road you're not invited to the party even though you haven't had a drink for three weeks because there's no guarantees of how you act when you drink at the party. They don't want you around them, drunk, sober, or any other way, because of your powerlessness. And the very word itself means whatever it takes to escape from that is not within you. It must be something you reach out to someone else. If you had the built-in power, you wouldn't be here. And the very word itself means I must reach out. And when you can do that, we'll move on. Well, I could do that after about four months. I mean, I wasn't that slow. With an unmanageable life, check it out. You know, that's the most ridiculous thing in the world. Check it out. Check it out. And obviously, right? Am I crazy? Yes. In the sense of the word, as they believed it to be and passed it on to me, Alcoholics Anonymous, if it does nothing else, respects the individuality of its people. What works for you, works for you. There's nothing in this program sealed in concrete because I said it, or Sean said it, or Bob said it, or Brenda said it. If it works for you, it works. If you have learned to live and to love and to laugh, whatever you're doing obviously is right. If you are sober, joyous, and free, you've got to be doing something right. And there, there recognition of insanity was somebody who could not see themselves for what they were greatly associated with honesty you will attain in your lifetime and I shouldn't say it I have attained in my lifetime the same degree of sanity as I have attained the same degree of honesty I will be as sane with me 
in you and Almighty God as I am honest. When I look in that mirror, what I see has to be really me. And not all this fantasy crap of what I am or what I'm going to be. And when I can see me for what I am, I have a great chance in the world of being restored to sanity. And those were the people who made me see that. They were the power that entered my life that had never been there before. And they made me see that. And I moved on. With defiance, <laughs> don't give up that damn easy. You know, <laughs> no, don't let it, don't let them ever give it to get up that easy. I said, well, I want you to know one thing. I get tired of this God crap. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. You know? And I was a meeting the other night, and all that guy talked about, God this, God that, God, God, God. Turn it over, do God. You know? He said, I started to get up and leave. <laughs> Wish they hadn't said that. <laughs> An old guy in A who was not my sponsor looked at my sponsor, and he said, isn't it, isn't it fascinating, the coincidence that surround this program? Strange things happen in this program. I was at a meeting the other night, and they were talking about Jack Sullivan, and God got up and left. <laughs> and I thought, I wish I hadn't said that. <laughs> he said, you don't believe in God? I said, nope, nope. Sealed in concrete? Yep. No possible way of changing? Nope. No. He said, nobody cares. I said, now, now, wait a minute. No. <laughs> that always interests an alcoholic if nobody cares. <laughs> if nobody knows what you're doing, it ain't exciting. You know? That's why a guy that's going to commit suicide will always tell you where he's at. You know? Guy's not going to tell you. He go, he'll do it. You know? So I said, what do, you, what do you mean? Don't you care that I don't believe God? He said, I couldn't care less. I said, how about God? He said, he couldn't care less either. What makes you think that God cares whether you believe in him or not? I said, well, I thought he did. <laughs> he said, you've been laboring under false illusions for years. You know, nothing is important in this world, what, what anybody else believes, and especially you. But he said, you see, in your life, in the life of every alcoholic, there's only two important things. I believe in you. I don't care what you believe about yourself if you're new. I believe that if you'll stay here with us, you can make it. I believe you can change your life and live as we do. I believe that if you've decided what you want, what we have, it's yours. Because you'll do what we tell you. But I believe in you. And he said, God believes in you. And that's all that matters. I believe in you, and God believes in you. And if you stay here long enough, son, you believe in yourself. And you'll understand that the Spirit of God is nothing more than the intangible Spirit of truth that allows all of us to be better people and survive, and someday you'll understand that. But he said, for the present time, don't worry about it. I believe in you, and God believes in you, and that's all that's necessary. And God's will for you is exactly the opposite of your own. And I said, I don't understand. He said, all your life you did things that would cause you to rot. God's will for people like us is just to grow. All your life you were doing things that was going to cause you to die. God's will is for you is to live. All your life you learned to hate. God's will for you is to love. All your life you learned to cry. God's will for you is to laugh. 
and you'll change and you'll believe and you'll smile and you'll learn to trust you know and you'll learn to understand that in this program of Alcoholics Anonymous we love each other because of each other I can look at you as a girl or a boy and I tell you I love you for the reason is that I don't love you for what you are when I tell you I love you I love you for what I am when I'm with you you see because of you I'm better and maybe in some small way because of me you're better one damn thing for sure because of each other God I love you for that no I don't love you boy or girl for what you are I love you for what I am when I'm with you before you I was nothing and I surrendered when I surrendered I could speak the language of the heart and move on you know back in those days they used to use Japanese a whole lot when they talk about surrender at the end of World War II, Japan surrendered to the United States. They immediately began to clear away the garbage and rebuild. They didn't clear away the garbage, rebuild, and surrender. They didn't clear away the garbage, surrender, and rebuild. They surrendered, cleared away the garbage, and began to rebuild. And look at it today. But on a more simple fashion, look at your own life when you just said and you knew in your heart you know in your heart nobody else know I've reached that point in my life I'm going to be okay I've surrendered I'm willing now I'm willing now to do the action that is necessary to clear away the garbage and rebuild my life and I did that with four five six and seven and they've talked enough about that I had an old friend that started AA in a town and I'm not sure that he's not dead I think he is but I won't tell you his name but he was such a he was such a lovely man I, God I dearly love being in his presence and sitting and talking with him he was not a complicated man and he loved to live and he loved AA and we got to talking about the steps one morning and he smiled and he said uh, I do them all every morning and I said you do what? I do them all every morning and uh, he said, uh, I've had a great life ever since. I said, what the hell are you talking about? You know, nobody does that. Oh, yeah, I do. He said, many years ago when I was drinking, I was sitting in my apartment, I had a fifth of whiskey, and I ran out of whiskey. And on the way, when I ran out of whiskey, I went to get some more, and on the way back, a dog bit me. And I went on up into my apartment, and a policeman came to the door and said that, the neighbors had seen the dog bite me and they couldn't find the dog and I would have to take rabies shots. And he said, uh, I told that cop, you can't make me take a damn thing. Get out of my house. And I threw him out of the house. And he said, I got to sitting there at the table thinking, what am I going to do if I have rabies? So he said, I went to the desk and I got a tablet and a pencil and I wrote down the names of everybody I was going to bite. And he said, the top of the list was God. How I hated him for what he had done to me. And I thought, boy, if I've got rabies, I'll bite God. And the list of names grew and grew and grew till he had three pages full. And he said, I thought in all fairness, and he said, I am a fair man. I thought I'd put down the names of who would like to bite me if they had rabies. 
He said, I filled up six more pages. <laughs> he said, Jack, I get up in the mornings now. He said, oh, I know there's thousands of books I can read and I can meditate and I can do all these things. But he said, I'm such a simple guy, I guess. Maybe dumb, I don't know. God, I love life. He said, I get up in the mornings and I get my coffee and I sit at my table and I look out the window and I look up at the heavens and I wink. My buddy's up there. And he said, I think, what have I done to somebody today that they would, or who would I bite today if I had rabies? He said, I'd like to think nobody wants to bite me. I've just done the best I could in such a simple way. I've learned to live, to love, and to laugh. People search for that sometimes. He said, we're blessed. You and I found it. Somebody showed it to me. He said, for God's sakes. For God's sake, please, please don't ever stop showing it. I'll tell you a story. I close every A talk I make with. I heard it years ago, and I loved it. And a lot of people I've heard from across the country have sent me cards and things that are interesting. But it was about a man who was walking down a very cold and lonely road one night. Miller Road laid a snake. And when he passed, the snake spoke to him. And the snake said, Mr. Please help me. I'm dying. I'm a reptile. It cannot live in this kind of weather. Please pick me up and put me under your coat in order that I may live. The man said, I can't do that. You're a poisonous reptile. And surely, if I get you warm, restore you to vitality, you'll bite me. It's your nature. And the snake said, I wouldn't bite you if you saved my life. So the man picked him up in the road and put him under his coat. And when the snake got warm, he bit him, and the man grabbed him and threw him out from under his coat and back to the road. And he looked at him and he said, I thought you promised if I'd help you, you wouldn't bite. And a snickering grin come across the snake's face and he said, you knew what I was when you picked me up. My friends, if you're sitting somewhere in the confines of your own home, a cocktail lounge, wherever it may be, if it's your decision to take the cap off of the bottle or the cork out of the jug, Explain it to those who are willing to listen. Rationalize it to those that want to hear. But if you've been here, if you've met me, if you know us, you know what it is when you pick it up. Thank you for having me in Iowa.